Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Lifestyle Edit Podcast. So I just want to give everybody a heads up that this is actually the second to last episode of this season of the show. We are going to take a little break over the end of November and December to recharge and get the final touches ready um, for the new year where we will be going weekly. So no more seasons, just weekly episodes from us so that is really really exciting we can't wait to share all of the amazing episodes that we've been busy working on but in the meantime i am equally excited to introduce today's guest my dear friend anna hart so just to give you a little bit of background anna has spent the majority of her career in marketing working for big fashion and tech startups like vestia collective but she's also an influencer in her own right And balancing the two really gave her the opportunity to understand the needs of a brand when it comes to collaborating with influencers, but also she understands the other side. So she's brought all of that intel together now in her own business, One Roof Social, where she works with brands on their influencer marketing campaigns. So her clients have included LK Bennett, Marks and Spencers, American Express, Gap, the list truly goes on. I really wanted to have Anna on the show today because We all know that, you know, digital and influencer campaigns are such a big part of businesses ongoing strategy. What you don't hear about is the how. How do you go about doing this? Um, And Anna really breaks it down in today's episode. So we talk about, you know, how do you measure the value of an influencer? How do you decide who you potentially bring onto a campaign? And the metrics to look at to, to ascertain whether that campaign was successful or not. Negotiation is a huge part of what she does. So we also tap into that because while she is representing the brands in these campaigns she also is friends with a lot of the influencers that she's pairing them up with so I wanted to find out how she balances those you know seemingly competing interests starting a business is never easy but especially working as an agency people are notoriously secretive when it comes to their rates so I really wanted to find out how she was able to to set her rates when she first started and create a sound financial model so since she started the business she's gone from a team of one she was a solopreneur to now having a pool of staff and she's really you know cemented her position as a leader in this industry she's actually hosting a summit all on the power of um, social media campaigns in january so i'll make sure to have all of that information in the show notes so without further ado this is anna hart Anna, so lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Um, so let's get let's dive let's dive straight in. Um, so I remember you saying at one point that you always knew that you wanted to run a business. So where did that come from? Did you grow up like surrounded by entrepreneurs? No, like the opposite. <laughs> like nothing. Like it's sort of this really sounds like I'm almost doing my background like discredit on my parents or anything. But my parents actually followed have really successful but really kind of traditional careers. Like, mum's a teacher, dad works in the city. They both did it in quite a methodical way. I can't tell you where it came from. I think, if anything, my parents very very much brought me up to that you can do whatever you want, really. And not in a ridiculous way. They also were like, be home by 10. But, (laughs) um, but, um, 10, 8, actually, (laughs) more like. But, 
yeah I don't, I don't know where I don't know where it came from I did what I remember watching things like The Apprentice and all of those kind of things and in a really quite cheesy awful way being like that's quite cool I like the idea of like coming up with an idea and going with it but my family and my friend and not even any of their friends like or anyone really in my immediate kind of circle I can't tell you a teacher inspired me it was just something that I wanted to do yeah Yeah. it's funny because even if I'm thinking about it I always kind of knew that I wanted to be independent I'm kind of a bit bossy like following what I want to do but yeah I didn't really even have anyone I feel like nowadays like working for yourself is so the norm but when we were growing up I mean I was thinking about it and sort of like, my Barbies ran businesses. Like, mm. do you know what I mean? Like, mm. it wasn't like Barbie didn't work for anyone else. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, no, no, I didn't have, and I, you know, and when I used to make things, like, you know, as kids, like, I never did anything for the sake of it. Like, I would build, like, Lego towns, and they would have purpose, and, like, I was obsessed with, like, Sim City growing up and Theme Hospital, but not from, like, the economics perspective. Like, it was yeah. properly nerdy. And it just really fascinated me. And I loved films like Jerry Maguire and all of that kind of stuff growing up. And I don't, but I, don't, I have no idea where it came from. No idea. It's funny, it though, from. when you look back at your history and it's like, that all made sense. Yeah. Like, you connect yeah. the dots, yeah. Yeah, it, it was really kind does. of all written on the it wall. It really does. My pa- I reckon if you ask my parents, they would probably go, yeah, she was going to have to do her own things because no one else was going to have her kind of thing. I reckon they <laughs> oh, probably I'm say that. But, um, but yeah, at the same time, it wasn't something that I really knew. If anything, when I was at school, I felt like there wasn't an option for me because I went to standard comprehensive in North London and the options were either, unless you knew you wanted to be a doctor, lawyer, or all that kind of stuff... They, they they really couldn't help you with your path. Yeah, it was more around pick your subjects around what the timetable allowed than anything else. <laughs> yeah. So and don't pick anything that has morning classes. But <laughs> I don't. I can't tell you. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So you started off your career in the kind of corporate field, right? Yeah, I started off in recruitment um, to start with. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I came out of university having gone to a fairly business uni. I went to Warwick. So all of my friends were just going straight into the city and I knew that that wasn't for me. Um, I didn't have a degree that really got me on any kind of grad programme or anything like that. Um, But I knew that I liked people and I knew that I liked making money. Um, but had no skilled. I so love that you just say that. How it's like saying that you want to make money is like a swear word. I don't see what's wrong with it. I don't see what's wrong with it. I think it's, you know, I know. I guess now I think about it. Like mum and dad, like we used to have weekly pocket money, and mm-hmm. if we hadn't done a list of things, we didn't get our pocket money. So money was a reward. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And maybe that has kind of sunk itself in and mum and dad very much were like we'll give you everything you need but if you want anything you have to go and earn it so it was Saturday jobs and it was all you know all of that stuff so and when and I got I loved it I absolutely loved it I still have my first ever salary little brown envelope do you yeah I've still got it I keep on meaning to frame it if I ever get around to it but it was for 38 pounds my first week (laughs) working in the chemist at the end of the road and I've kept it deliberately because just like you need to no, and it's kind of like my equivalent of Hugh Hefner's first hundred dollar bill oh, yeah. that he has in the, above his pool. I'm like, yeah, that's mine. Um, but I haven't, yeah, I've never, I don't know, like money was what I wanted to do. And so I guess in that sense, sales came into it. I knew I was quite good with people. 
and I like making deals like so it just sort of fitted and I actually went into a recruitment company to interview like to be a candidate of ah. theirs and went in and they said would you like to work for us and Damn I just sort of thought I was like okay um and no one else was calling so I was like okay yeah fine and it was the best decision I ever made um like I worked for a company, a company called Robert Walters which is I guess you like one of the big ones now very corporate and I was totally thrown in at the deep end this would have been 2006 and I did banking recruitment so the market was amazing yeah um, and I, my main clients were people like Barclays Capital, Goldman Sachs and stuff like that. Oh my God. Um, and actually it was really funny because my first business development success was Lehman Brothers. <laughs> the irony. Um, uh, yeah, the irony. And actually I had three people who were supposed to start, no, three, maybe it, there was definitely more than one, people who were there who were due to start on the day it went down. Oh. And so it became a bit of a joke with my boss that my first like business <laughs> development story was like the worst worst possible thing um and it went from there and then I moved on to media recruitment uh which led me that around then that was when I started my blog um so I was dealing with hiring people for magazines and okay. publishing and that I guess is when the career that I started to get a bit of a thing for that um and was on a conference and met a lady called Karen who had worked for uh, worked in recruitment previously and she was in her 40s when I met her and she'd since gone on to f- uh, set up Top Table. Oh my God. And sold it for a lot of money and she was fascinating because it was just so nice to see that someone who could say like your recruitment school set as a school skill set which is effectively the ability to walk into a room and deliver and have an understanding of time management and KPIs and sales and and money, really, and what that meant for a business, can basically be transferred into any business. Yeah. And she she basically took a bit of a punt on me and hired me for her incubator, which it's effectively the money that she made from Top Table, she then put into other businesses. So my job within that was to work with those other businesses as she acquired them or was in the process of acquiring them and help her commercialize it um I'm so loving this we've known each other for so long you and didn't I know did this. not even know no, this didn't know. um so yeah and it was amazing and I absolutely loved it and then through that um through that kind of circle of things there was lots of networking involved and all of that kind of stuff and through that met um my boss well, who was to become my boss at Bestia Collective wow. so it was amazing and I just Jesus like full power I mean I think, I guess we'll go on to it, but I can't explain to you how amazing that experience was um, to go. I mean, you look at the business now and it's just so done such a phenomenal job. Like yeah. it's, I mean, it's brilliant. When I joined, it was a totally different story, to be honest. And I think anyone would really say that. So what stage was it at when you joined? So they had just, they, they the six founders had scaled the brand over about three and a half years to become a household name in France. Yeah. And that's that's a hard job and they because it was pre-owned clothing um so it's like for anyone who doesn't know it's kind of halfway between an ebay and a net porter so um so it's luxury reselling and um the market uh, they they scaled it as far as they could in france and 
needed a U- needed a UK team really to globalize it. Yeah. So they hired my boss and they hired me. Um, and I think on paper, I think I was head of uh, or marketing and communications. I wasn't head of then. I went on to that. Um, and then my boss was MD. Um, so how many of you were in the two. London? Just the two of you. Just the two. Yeah. So having gone from such a big corporate environment, what made you take a punt on a, on a startup? Um, I just knew that, I think I knew that it was just heading, taking me the way I wanted to go. I think from working for Karen and seeing her really grow businesses and her experience, I thought that's what I want to do. But I also realized that I didn't actually have any experience that in, in that. Yeah. And I didn't, and certainly none in fashion. I mean, remember I had my blog at this point too. So I was beginning to really get a bit of a thing for fashion and beauty and stuff like that. But the businesses that I'd worked on for Karen were very different. There was a pets one. There was a um, positive luxury was one of them. And, or um, there was a real estate one, uh, but there was nothing, there was no retail clients or anything like that. So it was a logical step for me and it was cool. Like, and to be honest, I also fell in love with my boss. Like I just, not in that way. Um, thankfully for her. Um, but, um, I met her and just thought, I want to work for you. Like you, like you're amazing. And she's still now, like, I love her to bits. Like we, uh, I saw her the other week and we were joking about how different things are now and compared to how best year is. But so going back to your point, they, um, they just secured funding to Mm -hmm. globalize. Um, which was big news. Um, at that point, there really wasn't any other second-hand online retail platform other than eBay. And so what we had to do was find a way to get it into the market. And yeah. it was really hard because it wasn't a retailer. So it was a platform. We didn't own the product. Customers owned the product. The name was impossible. We changed the name. Um, it was Vestia de Copain, and we changed, which means like uh, your girlfriend's closet, okay. uh, which was pretty much a, a roundup of the, the original founder's kind of experience and how he set it up. Yeah. Um, but we changed it to Vestia Collective because, I mean, Vestia was enough of the challenge. A lot of people oh, say yeah. Vestia, they can't really say it. Um, and um, we had to globalize it. And it was really good it was amazing like some of the things I look back and haven't got to do I really was not qualified to do but my boss had faith in me and it was amazing and other times I can just remember trying to source loo roll for the cheapest do you know what I mean yeah. it was totally random, it was totally random, random. Yeah. and you know we had um sort of also there's a few people who were there well actually no there's only really one there now who was from the beginning but we had some amazing people um and then my friend Frauk ended up joining pretty much actually about a month after me but she worked on the sort of operational side she went on to go and run Germany for a bit and then we had Fred as well Fred Harold came and ran affiliates and uh, it was it's really cool it's like a proper old clan like really cool so talk me through your role what did it involve so on paper it was marketing and uh, social Mm -hmm. um but there was so much work to be done before there was anything to do that yeah so there was a lot of brand marketing working really closely with the PRs then bringing PR in-house yeah um and that took a while to kind of work out it's really the UK market from a PR agency perspective could never really handle Vestia because traditional fashion PRs 
couldn't understand that we didn't have collections that so we so we couldn't really do long leads because by the time it went to print the product would have gone, gone yeah. or you know or and we couldn't really do any we couldn't give away stuff we couldn't gift stuff to bloggers because yeah. it wasn't ours and there was an overhead and um but also so we had sort of well we had a fashion PR but then we also had a tech PR who looked after us from a platform perspective okay. but then that was very B2B so it was really hard yeah to get the voice together and get it right um and then then it was to kind of execute the English speaking, uh, m- like mother tone, if you like, of the brand. And that was really hard. And there was a lot of going back and forth on the Eurostar about that. And I can understand it because, the f- I mean, I think when you speak English, like for you and I, if you and I wanted to set up a global business, which let's be honest, yeah. we're trying to do, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, then the, we don't consider that we can only go so far with our language. Yeah. Whereas the six founders, like that, I think they found it quite hard to accept that they had to basically hand it over to an English speaker to make it what they vis- yeah. like visioned it. Yeah. So you had to be really sensitive to the fact it was a Parisian brand. And to be honest, let's be honest, there's nothing wrong with being from Paris. Yeah. Like, it had an element of cool and it, you know, and French do things really well. So the idea of the authentication process going through Paris is something that the brand will forever keep and they forever should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, we can't be all baguettes and mercy. Like there has to be. So there, it was sort of what do we keep? What do we get away? And there was a lot of to toing and froing around what people were comfortable with on both sides. Yeah. And because how do you have those conversations with a client like that where? Of course, it's the same with both of us now as, as business owners. Yeah. It's your baby. It's so hard. I think it's How really you- hard. At first, it was pretty, like, got, it was really tough because, like, for example, the PR, she's a friend of mine, like, the PR girl who worked in Paris was a bit like, hang on a minute, I thought I was going to get this job. So yeah. it was, so it was really hard. And it's sort of like, hi, yeah. this is me, <laughs> no experience in fashion, don't know why I'm here, you have a lot more than me, hi. Yeah. Like, and I've basically taken the job you wanted. And there was a lot of tearing and throwing on that but you just have to be kind and you have to be you have to be sensitive and um but you also have to really know that ultimately our goals were exactly the same and that was to scale the business yeah and so if you really know and that can't just be intuition you have to be able to come through and say I know for xyz reasons yeah that this is why we need to do we need to do this this will help the business this will do this this will do that yeah and then throw them a win ever so often then they're happy yeah yeah yeah. Um, you know let them choose their picture edits or you know send them a load of hashtags that they don't know you've already edited and like (laughs) stuff like that you know it's kind of and it's and it worked it's worked and it's nice and it feel you know I was saying to my boss the other week it's really nice to see that some of the things no matter how crazily different and bigger scale the business is now because it wasn't in America and they've conquered that and yeah um done it brilliantly um it's amazing that it's amazing it's really nice to see that they kept a few things yeah which I'm just like oh okay that went well that was good that was good so yeah so what would you say are some of the challenges in starting a brand from its conception because that the great thing about being the first is that you know you have that opportunity to have that market market share but Mm. There were growing pains with the first. I guess when you were going out to do like collaborations and things, there was no other thing to point to and say, okay, well, look at this company that's quite similar to us and it's done it well. Well, I can remember, I think a nice sort of analogy for this is 
Um, we had, and I think the brand still have Bay Garnet, who worked as a star consultant. Yeah. So she used to she used to come in and help source really good people. And Bay's so lovely because she's one of those people. She'd be like, I think I know someone. Would Kate Moss do? And you're like, babe. <laughs> yeah, she'd do. Cash. Like, okay, fine. Um, and we did a shoot with Charlotte Tilbury. This was before she had her makeup line. Anything. Okay. And when she was talk, when we were talking at her house, she was like, I'm thinking about starting a makeup line. Do you think there's room in the market? And now you walk into any That's department. So- store and you're like bang um but I can remember trying to explain to her what the concept was so she could make sure that she brought it across right in her questions and answers and her being like what like and I just suddenly thought it was like she's totally right to be asking these questions and I've totally forgotten that because it's my job that it's not you can't become too internal you always have to have that kind of what's the external market going to say like who you know you've got to be that sort of Charlotte wasn't this at all, but what would the village ed- ed- idiot be saying about your brand? Yeah, of course. And it's sort of, like, if you ask anyone what Tesco's do, everyone knows what Tesco's do. Yeah. Whereas, ask someone what a French business that sells clothes that aren't theirs, that are someone else's, and sets prices and authenticates them, <coughs> and ships them all off to various different places, it's just not going to... It was very difficult. Very yeah. difficult. So how did you manage with the social side? Because you... How... The inventory is coming and leaving as soon, you know, it's leaving as soon as it arrives. I mean, you did have to, but we did have to sort of, sort of wangle it a little bit because this was before things like image rights was such a sensitive issue. So we would see like a Celine trio on Camille Sherio and be like, right, brilliant, bam, we'll whack that on Instagram. Whereas right now, now obviously you wouldn't really do that so much Um, because despite having constant movement on product there were things that were consistently always on the site so you could shape content to a degree yeah but that was the big thing for me and my boss was like we have to create our own content and that was the majority of the the stuff that I started doing was how we can have a bit more control over our marketing because at the moment we're working so we've got to sort of have more of a control over our own content and um, so Thrack was running our own shoots, doing our own projects, influencer stuff. Um, well, the word influencer wasn't really around then. It was more like bloggers, um, PR events, press events. Um, because way back then, how did you find working with influencers? Oh, everyone. The PR agencies were just constantly pissed off that we were trying to do it. Okay. Because bloggers were then an extension of PR and they were treated like editors. Yeah. Which was the first mistake. Like, yeah. Um, and I think that was an industry mistake. Oh. Um, so, um, yeah, so it just wasn't, it wasn't really very, there was a bit of a battle because... I can understand it because from the PR agency's, PR agency's perspective, they were very much like, well, we have these relationships. Why wouldn't you want to make use of them? Of course. And you'd have to sensitively sort of explain that it's like, you do have these relationships, but you, you're not going to be able to get what I need out of that. Yeah. So there was a bit of a hustle on that um, on that front. <laughs> um, but we did it. That we, but then it was great because you'd say to them, right, we're going to throw an event and they'd be like, bam, amazing, yeah. great, we can do this. Like, cool, you do that. Right, yeah. Well, I'll hire the photographer and I'll get the shots. Um, so, yeah, it, um, it you was... Were, you were doing your blog at the same time. Yeah, which at the t- now when I look back seems a bit crazy, but I, it was such a hobby in the... Mo- and you know this, like, it was so different then. Yeah. And I don't think... 
there was anybody nobody expected it to scale on like the industry to scale on the way in the way it did so there was no expectation that a blog was that my blog was going to become a thing because I didn't start it with that expectation but saying that I remember we were in Amsterdam and you oh my were, god yeah, yeah you were oh my god <laughs> yeah. about that trip yeah oh <laughs> I know yeah we won't go into that but yeah so we were in Amsterdam and you were still working at Vestia you were in Amsterdam for the blog did they feel like it was a be- you you being able to be part of that world simultaneously was a benefit to your job yeah I think it definitely helped my boss in the UK like certainly embraced it um because she would say things like what would you respond to? You know, yeah. would you want to do this? Who do you think would be good for this? Um, and I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't had the blog. Yeah, so. true. So what ultimately made you decide to leave? Do you know what? Um, I don't know. Um, I think I always knew. Um, and I loved the launch state, that stage of things. And I think when the, they got Condé Nast Investment in the September... And I was already getting a bit itchy feet to do it. And my boss left in that time. She went on to um, be MD for Pinterest, actually. Wow. Um, yeah, so when that moved, she, she was, I was like, okay, bye. <laughs> um, so when that happened, I sort of thought, okay, maybe this is my time to go. And my boss actually said to me, like, no, stay, take on the majority of my role. I get the experience and leave after six months. Yeah. Which, to be honest, is exactly what I did. I did have one thing just before Christmas where I was in Paris and I was, like, crying in the CEO's office going, I can't do it anymore, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And he just said, no, you need a quick name. What you need is a holiday, Anna. Yeah. Like, you need to do that. So I went away and did that, came back, and then, sure enough, it got to sort of end of March, early April, and I just was ready to go. So before you left, had you kind of set up what was then Pitch and Post? Yeah. So Pitch and Post had actually been running as a uh, website, uh, just like an editorial platform for a couple of years because I just po- I would just post fairly irregularly on for bloggers about how to how to do affiliates or how to write a brand proposal, how to write a media pack, all stuff that's really obvious now, but you you didn't know then. You didn't know it then. Um, yeah. Like at all, um, and. I could see, and I did that actually more than anything, I wanted to try and see if that was, um, I wanted to test out WordPress because I was using Blogger on the blog and I wanted a way to kind of do it. Yeah. Um, because WordPress was the back office platform that we used for Vestia's editorial and I didn't okay. have to kind of mix up. Um, and so it was a natural thing that that would become the name of the business. Yeah. So it wasn't, I wish I'd actually taken more time and I think we'll talk about it more, but we taking more time to really think about the business name then. But, it was like the natural step, step. Was just to create that. And through blogging and through, and through Vestiaire as well, I used to meet loads of other brand managers. So I left knowing, not necessarily with that I had guaranteed work, but certainly there was going to be an appetite for people like me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, oh, hang on. Yeah, so it made sense that I would do that, um, and I think my first project was about three, four weeks after I left Vestia. Oh, my God. Yeah. What was it? Monica Vinader. Um, and then I had LK Bennett pretty quickly after that. Um, but, yeah, it was – yeah, it all went pretty quick. Do you think quick. you would have been able to have secured those kind of projects so quickly had it not been for you already being in the digital space yourself with the blog? No. No, because I think the appeal for me – I mean – um, 
I mean, yeah, like ask Holly because Holly is who commissioned me at LK Bennett is now works with me at One Roof. So it's funny how the world how goes funny. around. But um, but yeah, it's um, I, I think the fact that I had that dual perspective really helped. Really yeah. helped. Really, really helped. But then even just going back to the blog for a minute, because I remember you started um, the blog a little bit after some of us did. Had what was what do you remember the landscape was at that time? Um. I um I remember I was really scared because uh, I thought it was really intimidating because it was everyone was, everyone was saying they were an editor not a blogger and it was like who are you like yeah, you yeah, know yeah. and I can remember turning up to the first fashion week I mean when I started my blog I started my blog in February 2011 during fashion week and didn't know it was fashion week that's how nothing I yeah, knew Yeah I remember myself you, Bryony, a few others being in like the back of a cab. Yeah, that was the year <laughs> after. And I can remember meeting you and I can remember going into Somerset House, walking through that archway and yeah. being like, ah, yeah. this is going to be awful. Because I didn't know anyone. There were lit- I literally knew no one. It wasn't like, oh, I can maybe go and sit, stand over there and maybe she'll recognise me. Yeah. There was nothing. I went in totally cold. Um, I think the only person I really knew who was a blogger was Geneva, who runs A Pair and a Spare, who did kind of lean, uh, sort of get me to start mine but she was already abroad by that point okay. so I it was like cheers mate yeah. now you've just left me I don't know what to do so yeah so so what what did you envisage um South Molson Street style to be when you f- I didn't I mean it I didn't it was it just I don't even know I can't even tell you I don't know sorry that's yeah. such a rubbish answer but for me, it was just a way of discovering. I, I really wasn't, put simply, I really wasn't happy with how I was dressing. I was in a really corporate job where I had to wear suits Monday to Friday. I didn't like it. Um, and I wanted to, I, I was interested in it. Yeah. And I didn't, I never expected, I didn't read Vogue, uh, I've never read Vogue as a teenager. I, I didn't read fashion magazines, really. I would read the more sort of... Um, more fashion and cash kind of style, Grazias and stuff like yeah. that. But I had never really read those kind of quarterly magazines. Yeah. Um, but I guess I just wanted it to be a bit of a home for that creativity. Yeah. I mean, when it, you know this, when, when the blog started, it actually felt more, it was the reverse of how it is now, is that the blog, the internet felt anonymous. Yeah. There was no need, there was no pressure to put myself on it. Totally. Whereas I can remember Bryony... I don't think you were there. Another girl, Sarah and Dee, who now lives in um, Australia, being at Bob Bob Rickard with them and having to have like a good few glasses of wine to be able to muster the strength for them to be like, right now we're going to take your picture and okay. put you on the blog. Yeah. Whereas now, I just it's an everyday thing. But that's why I love the post that you did recently, your anniversary, kind oh, yeah, of reflecting yeah, yeah. back because it's so true. I remember when I started my first site, the Fast Pack, two thousand and eight. Oh my it god! Was. Yeah, two thousand eight. And I I remember writing a piece about like Phoebe Philo for Chloe and um, I ended up connecting with Ella from Coco's Tea Party and no one that I grew up with was into fashion at all and all of a sudden it was like through the internet I was connected with people that loved the same things as me so it was never it was never about it being a business it was like oh my god I actually am now like connecting with like awesome people who have so much in common with yeah I think that was it I hadn't really considered I mean when people talk I think I put this in this piece on my blog is that people I get emails all the time and I'm sure you do as well where it's like how do I scale my how do I grow my following I was like 
I'm the worst person to ask because when I started, there was no Instagram, there was no Pinterest, there was no nothing. Twitter was it. Twitter was it. Like, and then, and also, I would, and I had a BlackBerry at the time, and I remember because I was in my job, I would um, check my phone at lunchtime, and I would have these emails because I used to get because I had such so few notifications. I still used to get an email every time. Yeah, and I would go onto my inbox at lunchtime, and I would have say. Um, notifications so and so's followed you, so so's followed you, and it would be because British Vogue would have retweeted me because I'd used the hashtag where I textually described what I was wearing in the morning, yeah. And Vogue would retweet. I mean, imagine if Vogue that would just doesn't happen, yeah, that just doesn't. So I scaled it that way, and you're right, like my first, I totally get that it was weird because remember, this was a time where even the concept of online dating was weird, whereas now everyone does it, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Sort of, and I can remember going to an event. Um, where I uh, sort of agreed to meet up, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'd sort of arranged to meet up with a couple of people. I think Alex of Frugality was one of them. <laughs> I remember being really intimidated by Alex. I thought she was really cool. Um, whereas I think now we were all like that. With yeah. Alex when we first um, and, um, and, I could, and I'd arranged it over the internet and on the way speaking to one of my best friends and she was like, you've arranged to meet these random people, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I had no choice because none of my friends were into it yeah they all thought I was mad they thought it was really cool they were really supportive of the blog but I mean also the blog was pretty rubbish as well and I look back <laughs> on the kind of content I was pushing out then I was like mm, that's not very cool um but I also think I was very lucky with my timing because people like you and like that your like that original group had kind of set a bit of a there was something I could refer to. Yeah. I, I could look at you or I could look at um, Ella and I could go, oh, they've done this. Okay, cool. So I can do it like this. You know, that's, you know, that kind of thing. Where it, I did at least have a point of reference, which I guess is exactly what happens now when you, when someone starts a blog now. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking about this. I was like, isn't it so crazy that we've all pretty much like grown up together over the last like four or five years? Yeah, it is pretty weird. <laughs> it is really weird. You look at, some of us have stopped yeah, some of us like, and some of us really haven't. But a lot of us, <laughs> the, the majority of us, I think, have actually used the blog to find out what they really want to do, and what they do probably isn't the blog. Yeah. Like, so for me, it completely shaped me in setting up One Roof Social. Um, but I would never have known that had you not had yeah. that experience. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more about the shift from pitch and post to One Roof Social. Well, I think. Basically, I got the name wrong. Yeah. Um, and when I set up Pitch and Post, it was a it was a time when the expressions pitching and posting were far more relevant and, and sort of integral to the everyday of social media. And then more as other platforms opened uh, or start opened started, those phrases were used less and less. And the idea of, and my, my strap line then was connecting bloggers and brands. And even the word blogger now, like you just don't really hear it. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's influencer all the way. And I think, and I think as we, you know, um, I was unwell during that period, you know, in the period between pitch and post and one roof. And as well as being unwell, I, you, I had a lot of time on my hands. So I was able to sit there because I couldn't do anything else, and actually go, right, what am I doing here? Yeah. Let's have some focus, let's consolidate. And I thought, ah, actually this is, it timed really nicely because I was finishing a few consultancy projects and so had the opportunity to start again, I guess, for want of a, another word. And I realised when speaking to clients who were friends, saying, would it really matter if I did this or you know, yeah. all of that kind of stuff? And having read quite a few 
sort of business books and biographies because I love all that kind of stuff I really realized that often somebody's first business wasn't their best business so I had no shame in going no that isn't working that I'm gonna move and change it and I've always not been precious about that yeah um because ultimately I run a service-based business regardless of what it's called and if I can't if I don't feel that my brand is representing that service in the best way then you've got to change it so true and sometimes we can get so caught up with what we think others are going to think they're not thinking about it they don't care they don't care they don't care like I I had it the other day when I submitted an invoice and um no joke when I submitted the invoice uh, the guy emailed back and says, oh, that's a cool business name. I was like, we've done a whole project, dude. <laughs> yeah. Whole project. But they didn't come They didn't come for that. Yeah. So, you know, we, I liked, we, obviously we're scaling it more now and doing a lot more kind of cold business development. But the first round of clients, first round of business w- was me. Like that, It was me that got them or it was someone on the team that got them. So it's not, an, so name really was irrelevant. Talk to me a bit about what um, what One Roof Social does. Okay, so it's um, One Roof Social, I picked the name having really thought it out because the idea, it's it's an umbrella term for managing social media but without being too fluffy and more to the point, it you know, social media all under one roof or influence management all under one roof is a phrase that can carry the test of time. Yeah. Um, essentially, it runs influencer-based projects for brands. I guess... The only really important distinction, if you like, that I try and make really clear to brands is we're, we're not a talent manager. Okay. Um, and the reason I didn't want to do that was because from being at Vestia, um, we did use talent managers to roll out projects. And the thing is, say you're a shoe brand and you're trying to push your red shoes. Um, you come to me and you're like, who are the 10 best influencers to do red shoes? If I'm a talent manager, I'm obviously going to give you 10 off my Rolodex. Yeah. So whereas what I wanted to be able to say to a brand is like, I'm going to go away and do detailed searches, data mine, like kind of algorithm stuff and come back to you with a list of of comp, like that's comprehensive. Yeah. And therefore will drive results. Yeah. Um, it's more work for us. And sometimes I really question why we do it. But it what it does mean is that, that, you know, influencer marketing, there is no definite, just like yeah. there isn't in any other media buying form. Like, there's, there's not. But at least we can say to a client with conviction, like, these are the best people, and if it's going to work, this this will be the one that does it. Because we've looked at these guys' audiences, we've looked at their content, we've married that up, of course, with their aesthetic. Yeah. Um, so it just makes for a little bit... It For the way the UK market is, and I don't think that's the case everywhere... But a lot of brands are still actually, this is the, the first time they're investing in it. They may have invested time-wise and product-wise, yeah. but cold, hard cash, no. So it makes them feel a little bit more comfortable that they can, like data, it, data is basically a cushion. So talk to me a bit about the data. What sort of information will you provide them? We can give them um, information around uh, the demographic of the audience, um, click-through rates, sales-through rates on va- on various other campaigns, similar, you know, similar campaigns. Um, what else? Um, sounds daft, but location. So say, for example, one of our bigger clients was opening a store in Leeds a year ago and needed an influencer to be there for store opening. And actually having looked at 
um, the demographic that they were looking to do. It was actually no one who was Leeds-based. It was someone who was in Cornwall. So we got her up on a train. Mm. And, it's the, and so that dry, arguably drove more results because she had a better proportion of following that was relevant. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing, I read something this morning actually on LinkedIn, a guy called Matthew who runs a talent agency or influencer agency in um, Australia. And he was saying that, um, I mean, it's pretty obvious who it is, but he didn't say. He was like sort of um, the biggest Instagrammer in uh, Australia for bikinis. Um, 98% of her following is male. So when you see 5,000 uh, 5, likes on a picture, 4,980 of them or whatever it is are And not men. the customer. Are not men. Yeah. So it's like, so, and that really, and now since there was a shift and, influencer management stopped being a PR thing and became a digital marketing thing yeah. and you've got to remember that these teams have the choice between investing in influencer marketing versus investing in an e-commerce sort of method like PPC where they can say I'm going to put eight quid in I'm going to get 10 quid back for it yeah. and that you know and yeah. everything metrics matter yeah. and you've and so to get sign off and I know this from being a brand uh, you have to be able to produce some kind of concrete or at least as close to concrete even if it's not fully set concrete you know just like some kind of statistic that will go this is why we're doing this and also generally in the market brands they do have budget but they don't it's not like they have a ton of cash rolling around like they have to matter but it's it's crazy for me because if this kind of data is out there why aren't brands utilizing it i mean um I would quite like them to not to for a while. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That's yeah, like, it's like oh, yeah, whole business. There is no way of doing this yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, no, but come then, to it, us. But then on the flip side, it's like there are still brands that are a bit dubious about, oh, spending money on it. If mm. if you've got that that strong data, then it, it kind of is yeah, like a bit of a crazy. no-brainer. And to be honest, the, the other side as well, we're like, we had it fairly recently when um, we, uh, with this influencer got in touch and wanted to get involved in a campaign and it was like dude you bought all your followers like it took me 30 seconds to find that out like and anyone to find it out because the platform I use to find it out is freely available to the public so kind of how like where are we going and then I looked at their feed and it's like oh my gosh like look at all the brands that are signing up to this person and it's I find it quite funny because otherwise you just end up crying and that's your alternative. And I think this year, everybody's saying that this year is the year of the influencer. It's the year of the honest influencer marketing because it's not, there's a lot of people who sadly are going to miss out this year, but because they've had bad practice and the pendulum of control is shifting back from the blogger to the brand. And that makes sense because they write the checks. Totally. because I guess for you also, it must be quite an education process to your, yeah. to, with your um, brand explaining yeah. the whole kind of process. Like, yes, I know this person has 200,000, but this person with 50,000 has a m- much higher engagement rate yeah. and yeah. conversion. People, are, I mean, it's helped that there's been a lot of industry press around phrases like micro bloggers and stuff like that, because that just yeah. strengthens the cause. And actually what happens is, a, a typical brand for us will be somebody who's tried influence marketing, maybe use an agency, it's bombed, and but what they've not really understood is why the person with 20,000 followers has kind of worked for them and they don't really get it and yeah. and stuff. 
it is a bit of an education, but equally it's an education for bloggers because now we have this industry, this, this whole industry of people who have done nothing other than blog. Yeah. And like you said, like one, of, I think one of the reasons, or the main reason really, that my blog is anything close to a success is because I know how to negotiate because I have professional experience. Yes. Like we have these all these bloggers now who haven't ever sat at a desk, like in an office. Let, <laughs> their, their idea of a desk is at home. Like they haven't yeah. had it. Um, I mean, imagine, like, could you do the lifestyle edit if you didn't do, or if yeah, like, yeah. sort of proper sort of grafting years? Like, it's, it's crazy. And I do, I do find it really funny. And we do how blissfully unaware of that some bloggers can be or influencers can be. Because at the end of the day, there's over a million bloggers and influencers in the UK that have that there is argued like there's they have strong enough traffic to warrant commercializing yeah so if someone's hard work we're just going to move on like there's nobody who has that dominant market share here that warrants any kind of like well I deserve more it's like well I'm really sorry but actually no not in this case because how do you how do you navigate that when you're sitting with a client they're kind of pushing back on the price but how do you manage that negotiation because of course you want to service your client in the best way but also in servicing the the bloggers you're getting a cut for that so the more budget you get the more you have for your business how do you navigate that because I think so many of us are apologetic when it comes to asking for what we deserve and also we are in a very smoke and dagger industry where nobody talks about their prices so even with you as an agency how did you go about even setting what your rates were going to be well from our side we our rates, if you like, so our project management rates are based on general agency level rates, whether it's influencer or marketing or PR or whatever. There is actually a fairly industry standard kind okay. of setup. So that bit wasn't too difficult. But with terms of campaigns and the kind of money, we always start with that conversation and go, look, before we put this magical idea of getting everyone on a unicorn and flying them on a, you know, across the sky and blasting it on every platform, what money are we talking about? And we basically start there and go out. Um, Because otherwise, if, you know, if a brand has it in their heart that they want the biggest influencer in the world to promote their brand and then you can't it starts on a negative and then yeah. so the whole the campaign feels like a disappointment whereas if you start with the money and then go right how many people do you want to work with okay well that's divvying that up this amount or yeah. whatever um what kind of content would you like to see well we'd like to see them talk about this and that kind of thing and then we'll then we kind of then after having done all of the influencer talk about influencer searching and that kind of stuff we'll then go to the influencer and rather than say you must square peg round hole this situation. Yeah. We'll go, we have this budget. This is what we're hoping to get from it. And, you know, and so what can you produce for that? And yeah. it just create, it just sets a better tone. Um, but and- then how do you protect yourself? Cause it may be that, okay, you've had the conversation about money. You've created a, a pitch yeah. and a campaign. How do you protect yourself from that brand not taking the intel that you've given, the campaign that you've created and doing it themselves? I mean, we've had one. I mean, basically, by the time that we're really... We've had one that's absolutely brilliant, and it's hilarious, actually, because it's going on again this year right now, and it just makes me laugh. Oh, yes. um, Which, he he shall not be named. But, um, But... it's gonna happen like yeah stuff like that happens and 
you know, and I've spoken to you about it tons and yeah, it's frustrating and you sort of want to go, what? I'm a small business. You're a massive company. You've just completely ripped me off. But at the same time, it's like, oh, it's life. Like, yeah. you know, and you can't, and also if nothing else, at least you had a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If there's any um, consolation. And it's kind of, you know, and, but yeah, it's tough. And when it first happens to you, you do kind of want to punch a wall or at least try to and don't try it. But, you know, it, there's not, it, Imitation is flattery. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, actually, because like your business is interesting because you kind of have a bit of a split between retainer clients yeah. and then project. Yeah. Why do both sides? Honestly, um, the retained business is what starts the cash flow moving from a business perspective. Um, and operationally, we need that because yeah. when you're first hiring staff, that's the kind of stuff that you need. And I would imagine from a long-term perspective, that will become less and less of our business because once we have more cash and more projects, more clients coming through, there'll be less of a need for that longevity or security because we'll have more there anyway. Yeah. Um, but it was a nice, it was a cushion. So it means that if I secure a client for say six months or whatever, and I had one for 18 months and although it didn't quite fit the bill for One Roof Social, what it did mean is I could hire someone. Yeah. So, um, and so once we'd kind of got to that stage, I'd left them in November, December last year, as sort of as hard a decision that was. It was like, well, actually, no, I, I need to do this now. Like, I need to put myself out on a limb and I need to go get it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was, like, in January time, and I think you know, like we've spoken about, I was like, oh my God, what the hell did I do that for? Like, you know, invoices taking 600 days, like, all, no, no, no one's paying, no one's doing this, like, no that's project. the problem with fashion also, yeah. isn't it? We're notoriously bad with paying. It's like three months, you know, six months at a time. I love it when you get a finance, manager, a finance manager who's like, you guys just need to be flexible. It's like, what's flexible <laughs> about this situation? Yeah, yeah. Would you be okay to be paid two months late? Like, what is... And you paid you know, your staff, you paid photographers, you paid yeah, everybody yeah. else, and now you're waiting to I be paid. I can't, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really hard, and that's why I always business forecast on, or at least try to always business forecast on the on the idea of them paying 30 days later than they're supposed to. Yeah. Because it's, then they pay earlier, which actually happened to me on Friday. I was like, oh, that's come in like six yeah. weeks early because I've sort of done the other extreme, best case, worst case. Um, and But that's something as well that comes with time because you have to recruit a pipeline to be able to be in that position. Yeah. So, but, so I would say if you are start, if anyone is starting up a business, which is in any service, do try and get yourself a retained or consultancy-based client first yeah. because it does provide that cushion. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the ones that we've had have actually pr- um, helped us carve our narrative as well for want of a less sort of vague kind of thing. We've learned what we're really good at, what we're not good at. Um, yeah, so I would I would recommend it. How do you balance the commercial with the just the projects that you love? Because especially with <laughs> with influencers and brands, often it's the brands that are not necessarily the most desirable that will throw money at a situation. Yeah. Um, whereas sometimes the brands that, you know, people would dream to work of know that, so don't want to pay. So we had this recently actually, because we had one of uh, a client who's a very big brand, um, sort of said, well, we're a very big brand, so we're prestigious. So there's, there's, you know, yeah. there's a, pat on the back for yeah. working with us like, yeah. thank you very much and we sort of went well actually you could look at it the other way because if you look at where the influencer landscape is going um 
if you don't, if you're not ones that are seen to pay up fairly, this is going to be like the minimum wage situation coming yeah. out all over again, like yeah. hiding free interns by the dozen in a cupboard. <laughs> like when sort of this is what's going to happen. So actually, you guys are in more long term business danger. Yeah. Then you're doing yourself more damage just for the sake of like a few thousand pounds. Totally. Because actually, when it comes down to it, even if you pay an influencer well and what they're due, it's still one of the cheapest forms of advertising. Yeah. So it's. Yeah, it's not it, it's not rocket science. And brand, when you start putting stuff like that in front of them, they do get. I mean, obviously, there's ones where it's like no, and there's. But equally, I think the influencers have a bit of a misconception that because they're a big brand, they have big budgets, and that's not always the case. Yeah. So it because you know I know from working with them that sometimes there really is a thousand pounds, you know, and that's got to go ten ways. Yeah. And that's rubbish. But that really is what the PR PR in house has spent six months fighting for and that's all they've been yeah. given to test the market so there's there's always more to it there's it's always worth listening to the client and actually really understanding why they they are in the situation they're in because I know that you we just were speaking off air that you're kind of growing your team yeah how did you find it in the beginning kind of juggling everything and with the blog and then now how are you finding the process of letting go and empowering your team to own certain things oh I think um my old boss said to me if you know never hire anyone unless they're better at something than you yeah and being able to be sort of humble and honest about that it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. I, you know, one of the girls on my team, creatively, she's so much better than me. That, so when it comes to the point of coming, putting a project together, obviously I'm going to give it to her. So it's just, it's, there's no, there's no question of it. Um, but I think also, I think more, it's probably more interesting question to ask them really, but I think, once you it's once you get into the habit of it just being you it's like anything like even if you're in a relationship like if yeah. you've been single for a really long time and yeah. you're with someone it it's that divvying out and that time and that trust that just does take a while to build yeah and like obviously I, I always laugh because you're always traveling so much like I remember watching you on Instagram stories recently when you're in Switzerland and it was like yeah going to the spa but I have been working yes. <laughs> it's like yeah okay well actually what was quite funny is I was supposed to be in the spa at 9am and I got there at half past four I think because it just went a bit nuts but I also I'll tell you what is actually I think is really interesting is when you've been a freelancer and when you you go from being a freelancer and working to yourself to being a business owner, because I really am of the mindset that when you are a freelancer, you should enjoy what you what you do. In that, um, should we stop for a second? Sorry, is that noisy? I was just going to say that when you're a freelancer, like you should really work as you work best so actually if that if you don't work you don't work well in the afternoon don't work in the afternoons like yeah work in the evenings but then when you run a business you have to create an environment so yeah it's, and it's, it's so shit. true I was such a slave for that like you know wanting to work out in the middle of the day and feeling mm. so guilty about it or you know I yeah. I'm like tired by nine o'clock I'm just like a morning person <laughs> and I'd be like oh my god I should be up late yeah. you know it's about figuring out yeah how to make it work for you um should we go all about um 
sort of when you're a freelancer, so it is just you, really enjoying that and actually really relishing the fact that you have the freedom to work when you're good at working. So if you are brilliant first thing in the morning but not so great, say, early afternoon, then then don't work then. Like, yeah. go and do something else. Like, do go, work, go and work out. Do have that as your social time. Go and see a friend, you know, that kind of thing. And as long as you're getting your job done, then that's fine. But when you actually start to scale a business, and I thought it was really interesting because I was at a lunch recently and I sat next to somebody who said, oh, I, you know, I've heard about the opportunities. I'd love to come and work with you. What I really love is the flexibility. I instantly just sort of went, no, like, yeah. that's not what we are. Like, yeah. We are a Monday to, you work for me Monday to Friday. <laughs> like, no, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> like, like, what are you talking about? Flexibility. Because um, that's, um, that's another I guess, thing that I really knew marrying the recruitment experience is when people say like first up that they want flexibility, they want an easy life. Like, they do so, not want, yeah. it's sort of like you want people who come to you who go, I'm really prepared to work for you. Yeah. And then you go, do you know what you've done really well? You can, you leave early. Like, you, do you know what I mean? Or um, Yeah, because what would you say if someone of the biggest misconceptions that people have about what you do that I don't do any work <laughs> yeah. I think it's the big one yeah that I just take pictures of myself or um I mean my best friend has like the opposite job in that she works in the city it's comms actually she works in the city she's got a very kind of like meth- she had a very methodical career journey yeah really su- like super successful um she'll probably listen to this and go I can't believe that's the first time she's ever said that um <laughs> But um, but she, it's really interesting watching her describe what I do to other people because yeah. she'll just be like, "Yeah, this and we don't really, we don't, we don't really know." Like, but she seems to be doing okay because her flat's quite nice, yeah. that kind of thing. Like they won't know, she won't, they won't know how to quantify it. But then actually, I really like that. It feels like I like that it makes you remember that the general customer actually has no idea how much social media is yeah. planned. And I, kind of, I, I do kind of love that it's, it's, it hasn't been taken so public, you know, so yeah. out there that it's still yeah. got a charm. And then at the same time, I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. It's almost like social media has now become like when people realize that ads in magazines are retouched. It's like, Oh, <gasps> Yeah. yeah well that's just it it's when people go mad I, I do feel so and there are some epic fails like I found one the other day that was just so photoshopped and it's like dude the railing is an S shape like yeah, what yeah, are you yeah. doing but um but but then when people go oh I think it's a real shame that they re- they retouch that I'm like do you, where have you been living yeah. it's advertising like yeah. like it or not like it's integrated advertising it's advertorial but we need to accept that that is what we're doing yeah um you know um yeah of course everyone will put like well everyone should put hashtag and add hashtag spawn on anything that is sort of officially partnered but also when someone a youtuber is going through their beauty box did you really think that they went to Superdrug and got all of that like no yeah. that was sent so yeah, of course i think there's but what's real about it is their voice and their perception and the way that they're talking to people. And that's the authentic part. And I think that the only time really that influence marketing goes wrong is when that is any way manipulated or compromised. Yeah. Actually, if you get, you know, it's just like a, like a, an A-list celebrity fronting, fronting a perfume campaign. When it fits, it fits. No one minds. But if it's a bad advert or a bad fit, then people moan about it. It's exactly the same. It's so true. Because one of the downsides of social media is that we constantly see people's highlight reel. Oh, yeah. How how do you balance that? And, and again, you know, guys, Anna and I are friends. And, you know, like I said, we've kind of grown up a pool of us um, 
you know, operating the outtakes. (laughs) Operating in the digital space. And, you know, even for me, if I'm being completely honest, there are all those moments where it's even friends where you're like, oh. But I had it the other day. I spoke to a friend today and I was like, so you've been too busy to call me, have you? (laughs) You've been pretty busy on Instagram stories. (laughs) And I get it. And then then to be, you have to laugh about it. And um, I always say, I, I, like, I actually showed a couple of my friends. I was like, I'm going to introduce you to something. It's called Hootsuite. Yeah. I'm not really where I say I am. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. the majority of the time. Um, but it's it's tough. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's... But I do think it's just going to become an accepted way of advertising. It's, it's not... I think advertising as a phrase may well sort of disintegrate. And it's just about absorption of media and where people are prepared to see it and where they're not. But for the from a highlight perspective... I try myself on my own feed. I really try to talk about the lows because I think it's really important. Like, Your Insta stories <laughs> is like gives me the most love. <laughs> it's like ridiculous. But I have to remember, like, actually, I haven't spoken to you in a while. I just know everything yeah, that you're doing. I, I thought today, and I think I actually said on my Instagram, I was like, I do hear less from my friends, <laughs> which is quite good because I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> so, so it serves a purpose. But um, it's. I do just try and I do try and keep it real because obviously you know I come home and there's lovely things waiting for me that amazing brands have sent to me and I get to do amazing shoots but I also will be walking through Hampstead Heath and get dog poo on my foot like, and won't have a bag with me because I'm disorganized and like all, you know all of this kind of stuff and I think it's really I think it's really important and I really love that I quite consistently get the feedback of love your stories, loved it when that went wrong. And it's like, okay, like, cool. And some people do that elevated pitch so well. And I've got friends that do it and it's their thing and it works. Yeah. And I think I always say that the influencer industry landscape is like looking at that newsstand opposite Liberty in Oxford Street. And then yeah. you've got all of these beautiful magazines out there but actually some of them are gorgeous quarterlies that you'll never buy from but you just love having on your coffee table and like browsing and then you have those like fast action weeklies where you're like I just have to buy it like right now that is a bad analogy yeah but I think I think influences are exactly the same like exactly the same like I have a few where I'm just like I just literally follow them to buy stuff yeah that is it and I have others where I'm just, I'm like, I just really in, enjoy seeing what they're up to. I'm not really fussed about what T-shirt they've got on, but yeah. but actually I really, you know, I like like their wanderlusts, you know, all that kind of stuff. Because how do you, just to round out, how do you decide what you share? Because as a friend, I feel like you're sharing more now yeah, yeah. than you ever have done. Yeah, do you know what? I think that's probably two things. Number one, I think that social media kind of demands it and the audience demands it. Um... But also, I'm just really content with myself. That sounds so arrogant, but no, not at I don't all. have like I don't I don't really ha- I don't have a, I don't have a problem with it. Like I kind of it's my life. Like there are things that I that I kind of don't talk about a huge amount. Like I don't really do much emotion on there. But in terms of practical work based stuff and just life because it's funny like yeah. yeah that goes on I don't I don't mind like if I'm ever re- you won't see me sobbing because my my mum me and my mum have had a row I mean we never row but like if we did it wouldn't go on there um but then uh, you know or you won't really like I haven't really talked about health on there yeah and I don't and I think because I've liked that it has been free of that because it's a happy nice environment like yeah it's real yeah. and there'll be some com- like sort of comedy elements of bad stuff and all that kind of things 
but in turn it's got to be something that I want to do ultimately it is my hobby that I do have a business so if I'm going to share on it and really work at it then I have to love it so that is a perfect way to round out thanks that was awesome big thank you again to Anna Hart for sharing so many incredible nuggets of wisdom on today's podcast episode if you want to find out more about Anna's services check out her website oneroofsocial.com and you can also find her blog at southmoultonstreetstyle.com as always every week we are uploading a new story with an incredible female founder on the website so check us out at thelifestyleedit.com and of course we always want to continue the conversation so hit us up on instagram at the lifestyle edit have an incredible week and we'll be back with another episode of the lifestyle edit podcast on tuesday